Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. I'm so excited to introduce the next guest to you. Her name is Maya Zosma, and her path to medicine was a windy one. She's a testament to those who say, and rightfully so, that medicine is both an art and a science. Maya studied architecture initially and has been releasing music and playing gigs with her band for the past 10 years. She then went on to study medicine and is currently taking time out of training to pursue humanitarian work both here in the UK and abroad in the infamous refugee camp of Lesbos. Hello, Suva and Maya. Hi. <laughs> it always excites me when we have more than one person, one other person in the studio. And it's very exciting. And also to learn so much about Maya. So I had no idea that Maya had all these interesting like side hustles going on. Because <laughs> um, I met you very randomly in the hospital canteen yes, with a mutual we friend. We had a great lunch. Yeah, then. and yeah. all I learned about Maya during that like hour <laughs> was just that you used to do this intense squat challenge <laughs> to the tune of Fort Minor's, yes, um, yes, we did. you know, the 100% song. Um, so Nothing to, to show out. for it. Nothing to show. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say yourself short, Maya. Um, but then now to find out that you went to architecture school and you do all this work with like the refugees. And then medical and, school. Yeah. I think you make me sound a bit cooler than I am. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, actually tell us why you decided to study architecture in the first place, because it seems like you've done loads of random things. I have, yeah, yeah, I really have. Um, at school, I just really loved art. Um, so I wanted to do something creative, uh, but also I really like science. I was always a bit like my my A-levels were like chemistry and art and English. Everyone's like, what are, you, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> so, um, and then I kind of like found architecture would be a really nice uh, balance between that love of art and something a bit more uh, scientific, I guess, mm -hmm. yeah. So, Did you um, go straight into architecture then? Yes, yeah, I went to Sheffield University to do architecture. It and was really good fun. how many years was that? Three years. Okay, and then you decided that you didn't have enough studying. <laughs> so, <laughs> When I finished architecture, it was 2008, so the recession just started, oh. so there was no jobs. Um, so a lot of us were applying and not really finding anything. So I worked for a bit kind of in um, related fields. So I was working like a furniture workshop. I learned okay. how to uh, build um, like furniture out of leather. Um, That's cool. Yeah, That's cool. more randomness for you. <laughs> um, and then in, in that time, I started thinking maybe this is not for me. Like I want to work with people. And I took a job as a like a receptionist in a clinic in King's College Hospital. Okay. And then I decided like, yeah, this is maybe what I want to do. So I applied for medicine, didn't get in. Okay, so yeah. relatively shortly so, after. Yeah, 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 I worked for a bit. I did. I was waitressing for a bit. I was a receptionist for a bit, did random bits and then uh, tried to get into medicine, couldn't get in um, and applied again the next year. Uh -huh. Managed to get onto like a um, foundation course at Bradford um which had a link into Leeds Medical School okay. um while I was doing that course at Bradford I actually applied again to graduate entry courses and I managed to get a place at Keele Medical School um, oh you so have the same course as me structure because exactly, I went to Manchester yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so then I got into Keele so that was great <laughs> so had you thought about um medicine as a career prior to ever working as a receptionist yeah, I did. I wanted to do medicine when I was at school, but I think okay. I was. I probably thought I can't do it. Um, you know, I didn't think I'd 
be able to get into med school so and I thought I'd just pursue my art mind Mm -hmm. um but then I guess after architecture I thought maybe I kind of got drawn back into it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and why didn't do you think that you couldn't go into it or why did you have that mindset at the time I think I didn't at my school it was very much like the the top students went to med school um Mm. I was never a top student um it was very much like they directed those people to go. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't see myself as part of that cohort maybe at the mm. time. And you don't really know what you're doing when you're at school. Me, no. So, no. Yeah, yeah. I think we've spoken <laughs> about that before, actually. The fact that you almost get like sort of handpicked to be like the school's nomination for yeah. medical school. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Everyone knows who went to med school from your year and things like that. Yeah, yeah. totally. So, and who yeah. applied before the 15th of October for <laughs> Oxford and Cambridge. It's exactly. Yeah, so yeah. It's a yeah. sort of elitist kind of... I think it's really bad, actually, because I don't think anyone yeah. should feel that they aren't good enough for med school. Because so many people that you know you might have all the accomplishments on paper but you you know it may not suit you it may not be what you want to do but you just end up kind of getting pushed onto pushed the conveyor onto, yeah, belt yeah and then yeah, people leave like, in the middle of med school so because exactly. it's not really for them no. but yeah yeah maybe that's maybe i would have gone there earlier <laughs> maybe that would have been a bad idea maybe yeah. i needed that that break so yeah. <laughs> yeah no that time is useful as well but but aren't both your parents doctors yeah yeah so obviously they were keen for me to make where are they totally so bad. this is an interesting thing i mean yeah. not to digress too much but like would you, guys, would you guys want your kids to do medicine i mean i don't know i feel like i'd want them to choose their own path mm. that was beautiful <laughs> <laughs> that's very cliche <laughs> i think i i am really happy that i'm a doctor mm-hmm. i don't think i would do anything else mm-hmm. but it's if it's not for you, it's really not the job for you. So yeah. I think you really need to to be suited to it. I don't know what you think. Well, like for me, my dad actually told me, Dad, why don't you explore your different options? And actually, initially, I wanted to go to America because they've got a wider um, education system over there. So you kind of just choose a couple of things. So I applied. I did my ACTs. I did my SATs. And I actually no did really, oh, wow. Yeah, so I actually <laughs> did really well just because um, that what we were doing at A-level was far above what they were doing in America at that age. Yeah. So it was more like GTSE level kind of stuff. So I was like, <laughs> I got America in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> They're really hard. But the test called the SAT was just so simple for me. <laughs> Perfect score. No, so I then applied and I got into two places. Where? But Stop the, being so coy. I'm going to be coy. <laughs> but the fees are so expensive. Yeah, tell them. But like ridiculous. Yeah. You get As in, like, my parents would have had to remort, well, really sell their house. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's ridiculous. I think that higher education in America, you just get outpriced. You can't afford it. Because um, I had a friend that applied to American colleges mm-hmm. back in the days. Um, and she, like, had to have, like, she had to have financial aid. So, yeah. and they do have a lot of good financial aid programs, though. Especially if you're, like, you're in sports and things. Like, that, yeah. they've got really good scholarships for people. Yeah. But actually, if you just studied and that's all you can do <laughs> no scholarships babe, for you. you better have some money <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you've got to be really well rounded haven't you there i can so imagine you going to like an american i feel like it really would have suited you oh maybe i would have found american bay but i'm gonna stop talking about my I'm, i need to stop talking about my search for bay on this show because otherwise i need to change the title of it <laughs> so Clearly, um, you are interested in other things outside of medicine that are complemented by your career. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing over the past year? Uh, yeah, so I took an F3 year and I had quite a few ideas what to do, but like most people, I wasn't very organised. I've been working in elderly care as a SHO, but then I also travelled to Lesbos, um, which is a one of the Greek islands. Um, there's a big refugee camp there called Moria. And I was there for a month working as a doctor in a clinic. And I'm planning to go back actually in a month. And some of the other things I've been doing, I've been uh, working on a project based on some data that I collected as an F2 to improve the care and the patient journey of homeless patients in our hospital. Um, So I've been kind of like dipping in and out of things that I've that interested me that I never really had a chance to pursue. And then also I'm doing a diploma in medical care of catastrophes, which is really interesting, disaster medicine. And yeah, I guess. And you're also learning Arabic, aren't you? Yes, yeah, I did a course in Arabic. (laughs) You're actually crazy, I've just realised. And a side note, casual side note, learning Arabic. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so um, I, I did that because I'm, I knew I was going back to the camp. So yeah. I thought not that I could do the work without an interpreter, but having a little bit of Arabic to yeah. kind of help, I think would help, will help me. Yeah. Did you always know that you were going to go into refugee work? No, not at all. No. Um, <clears throat> I think I started getting interested in the refugee. I don't want to say refugee crisis because that's I don't really like that term. Mm -hmm. um, but it kind of really like touched a nerve with me. I felt like I wanted to know more about it. I I felt like I needed to do something. Um, so and I just started searching around, seeing what what work is out there. I think you know, as a doctor, you know, you have this skill that you can mm -hmm. give. And I thought, well, I could you know I could use that. Go and get myself basically understand it more and, and mm -hmm. maybe to help a tiny bit like you can't really make a big difference but you know it's every little thing I guess mm. you know I've lost my uh, chain of thought there <laughs> <laughs> so before yeah. you went out to Moria what what did you like anticipate it would be like what sort of what was kind of concerns in your mind about how things would be and how was it when you actually got there? Yeah, so actually I had no idea what to expect and I was incredibly nervous. You don't really know, you know, how the camp is going to be. You don't know what the NGO that you're working with is going to be like. Mm. I've never done humanitarian work before. So I was like, I was really, really nervous. I was like reading up about it as much as I could. When I got there, I could not have pictured what I saw it was actually way worse than what I thought it was going to be particularly because I thought well you know I'm going to Greece uh, it's, you know it's Europe um, there's going to be some kind of standards but actually it was the conditions were really horrendous and the the problems that we saw in the clinic were not what I thought they were to be um, so that was a bit shocking to me very overwhelming at the beginning got a little bit easier towards kind of after I'd been there for a week or two but it was it was really tough it was an experience that I mm. think is quite almost life-changing for me yeah and can I ask what was the setup of the camp like so there's uh 7,000 people there at the moment around 7,000 um but the camp is a it's a military base and it's only built for about 2,000 people so it's very overcrowded people live in um some of them live in these iso boxes which are kind of like shipping containers um but there's obviously way more people than there are ship uh, iso boxes so there's lots of tents and then there's a massive overspill area outside the camp which is called the olive grove which is just loads and loads of tents um there is kind of basic facilities there's running water intermittently um electricity i, I i'm not really sure what the picture is with electricity in our clinic we didn't have running water um and i'm not really sure about heating and things like that it's one of those things that you know <coughs> You kind of hear from the refugees like what their situation is where they're living but every every person has a slightly different kind of a living um arrangement yeah. so some people have access to more than others but still not very much no not very much yeah. uh th th there's just not enough facilities uh, living space kind of area for the people that are living there um there's not there's obviously not enough provisions of healthcare. Um, there's our clinic, there's a couple of other clinics, but it's very, very scarce on the ground. Um, yeah. Mm. And you said that you weren't quite prepared for the types of conditions and things that you would come in contact with. What mm. did you mean by that? Um, I didn't realize how uh, overcrowded it would be. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's no, there's very little dignity. Uh, hygiene is a real, real issue. Uh, we saw a lot of scabies in the clinic that was very difficult to get on top of because there's no um, like washing facilities yeah. for clothes. Um, there's there's children in the camp, there's like young families, um, and the camp is very dangerous, um, especially at nighttime for women and children. And I didn't quite understand that before I got there. <clears throat> you don't really think of the kind of s the impact of putting mm. so many people together in such a small space and people who have been through so much trauma mm. and people who are from so many different backgrounds mm. and cultures so I think that was quite overwhelming when I got there yeah how did you find from like uh like a medical perspective were you support did you have a lot of senior support did you feel like you kind of had the capacity within yourself to manage conditions you were seeing or did you find that some of the things you were seeing were things that you weren't maybe used to seeing here um and also I mean just as a quick background what mm. jobs did you do <coughs> as an F1 and an F2 so yeah, what was so, the, um, the lead up oh sorry so I did um what did I do vascular vascular surgery mm. uh psychiatry and stroke mm -hmm. 
Then F2, I did pediatrics. Uh, A and E. <laughs> See, it's traumatized me so much. I had to think about that. <laughs> and uh, AMU. Okay, that's and a really good mix of jobs. Really Very good mix. mix. Really good mm-hmm. mix. Yeah. yeah, and then I went into elderly care, and then I went to the camp. Yeah. Um, what was the other question? So sorry, medical, can, medical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So from a medical yeah. point of view, did you yeah. feel supported? And were the things you were seeing things you were felt comfortable managing? Mm. So actually, I didn't realize how much mental health there would be. It was um, it was completely disproportionate to the to to the kind of the amount of people, patients we saw in the clinic. Most of the cases that we saw were mental health related. Most people just uh, struggle to sleep there because they go through kind of trauma. They've got PTSD. Um, apart from that kind of stuff, we had y- your basic pr- primary care presentations. So mm-hmm. like UTIs, chest infections, um, you know, headaches, pain conditions, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, reflux. Um, I felt I, I, I didn't feel as supported as I thought I would be mm. um there is a Greek doctor working there um the I, I guess the way that they work there is a little bit different to the way that we work here mm-hmm. also you can't do the things that you would do uh, back home uh, at the at the at in the camp of- in terms of you'd you know you can't send everyone for blood tests mm-hmm. um you can't send everyone into hospital there's just no capacity on the island for mm-hmm. that you have to be a little bit careful with who you call in um ambulances for because there is a little bit of a worry that ambulances will just stop coming into the camp if you call them too much mm-hmm. so you have to do as much as you can in the camp with the limited resources that you have mm-hmm. Um, mental health wise there's not much you can do at all yeah I was going to ask because I mean um, you know for so many things you might want to refer them for like mm. counselling things like that and is, yeah. is that an option there is that there is uh, a referral system in place to have uh, psychology but the waiting lists are huge uh, these patients have been there for I don't think people realise that these um, refugees actually stayed in these camps for months and maybe years mm. uh, just waiting for their asylum process to be um for the asylum to be processed. So you can refer them. Uh, we, I, I don't know how much help that psychology service was mm. because it's very basic. Um, there are a lot of other NGOs in the camp that do kind of um, community projects. So there was another NGO that like opened a library and ran like stress classes in, in different languages. So that w- that's what we focused our management on. We were basically kind of encouraging them to say, Okay, like, you know, basically empowering them. Um, I guess they've been through so much and managed to get themselves to Europe, to this camp. It's kind of like they probably know more about resilience and kind of healing Mm. than we can kind of teach Mm. them. So Mm. you kind of build on that. You kind of empower them and say, you know, go go to the library, go go for a walk. I I used to say to them, go for take an hour walk every day. Just have a routine, do something with your day, you know. Um, and it was really actually amazing how they took on that advice because they're incredibly strong uh, group of people. So that's kind of where we aimed our management plans. Like you can't give medication because uh, first of all, there's a there's a real risk of overdose, and second of all, they they it might create a black market within the camp. So you have to be very very careful with medication. Only in extreme cases we might give some some uh, lorazepam, but very very extreme um you can't really send anyone away with any of those kind of medications so you just have to basically empower them to i don't know help themselves uh, help each other as well they really really helped each other it's very difficult it's very very difficult uh, managing those kind of presentations in the camp because you know that they're going back to the same issues that uh, brought them in so uh, some of the me- mental health problems were to do with the trauma that they've experienced from where they were fleeing from or the trauma they've experienced en route. Mm -hmm. And that is perpetuated by the conditions in the camp. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a no-win situation. So you have to really empower them and... You know, it's 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 really impressive the the amount of hope and resilience that they have, actually. Yeah. And you said that there were other NGOs working within the same camp. What was the support and what was... and what resources were available to... refugees essentially Mm. so there was an NGO providing food Um, there was an NGO that uh, (coughs) provided some educational stuff for the kids in the camp Um, 
there is another camp that's kind of more, has more families in it. So they had, I think, uh, a, a formal uh, system of schooling. I don't think there was one in Moria, but I might be wrong, or that might have changed since I've got there. Um, what else did they have? Um, sort of community projects. So there's a, another an NGO called Refugee for Refugees who are incredible. I worked with them when I was there as well. Um, they're kind of some some of them are volunteers from abroad. Some of them are refugees that live in the camp, and mm. they basically curated a, um, a like a community. Uh, well, what they had at the time was a clothes distribution. So they would collect all the clothes. Um, donations kind of sort them and then uh, people could come from the camp and kind of get some new clothes and things but they also did a lot of community work community projects kind of um things with the kids <coughs> there's lots of small projects going on uh, there's another big ngo that had a whole community center uh, quite near the camp so they had um you know like i, I don't know exactly what they had there because i never managed to go there but they had uh, activities for the kids, activities for women. Um, th there's there's uh, NGOs that do classes, so like Greek classes, English classes, uh, IT classes, kind of things aimed at integrating people into the community mm -hmm. and help them kind of if you know they're going to stay in Greece, help them kind of integrate into, into the society. So it's it's kind of really amazing stuff that's yeah. been done there, and yeah. it's clearly quite life changing. Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you think it's changed your practice, particularly coming back to the UK after being mm. there for such a long time? It's difficult because I kind of imagine myself going back and having to deal with some shouting people in A&E telling me that they've been waiting for too long. And you kind of think, oh, you just, you're so lucky to have the NHS. It's, it's, it's such an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, I did find it difficult at the beginning. Um, I think maybe uh, how did it change my way the way that I practice? I guess I'm like for myself, I'm like really grateful that we have this this service, mm -hmm. and I'm almost like amazed at some some of the things that we can do. Um, and maybe I have more patience for people as well um, because in the clinic people have to wait for hours to see a doctor, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of fighting outside the clinic, and they can get really really aggressive. And you have to keep reminding yourself like what these people have been through and the con and the, the situation that they're in and you try and kind of be patient with them. That's quite hard sometimes. But I think it really like taught me that kind of step back, just be patient. There is a reason why somebody is behaving in the way that they are sometimes, not all the time. Yeah, and I think in elderly care, I think it, it's, that's another part of our society that needs, um, you know, that needs kind of the welfare system and things like that and mm -hmm. I I'm like really grateful for that and, and I'm really happy about that yeah. and patients from the doctors as well yeah it? exactly yeah. yeah so I don't know if it made me like a better doctor but it just kind of made me more appreciative of what mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. and more grateful yeah do you find that you're now really stringent with sending people for blood tests because <laughs> you can appreciate like <laughs> I knew a silly question was coming <laughs> <laughs> from like my expression on my face I was yeah. like so <laughs> Do you um, find that you are? Because I, I wonder sometimes if we're so used to just, you know, like having the luxury of being able to be like, well, you can have a chest X-ray. So, you know, and I guess it will rule out this one differential diagnosis, which I don't really think you have. But here you go. Here's a chest X-ray, which if you were in more, re you know, like resource, um, yeah, resource yeah. environments, you wouldn't do because you cannot do yeah um i don't do crps very much <laughs> there you go and they're our expensive trust, and they're our very trust expensive. is like literally yeah. always reminding us that they're expensive and that yeah, we don't exactly. need to do them every day yeah but i think i think that's also maybe like an experience because i think when you're an f1 you kind of put out all the blood tests for everyone because you yeah. don't really know what you'll need whereas maybe with more experience you think actually a crp is not going to change my management so it's just a waste of money <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but i think I, I don't know I, I don't think i'm more stringent i just think maybe like you think a bit more about yeah, kind of things that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I used to go yeah. to all the MSF talks when I was at university. And I remember whenever the doctors who had been working in these camps abroad um, came back to the UK, they said that actually working in these areas allowed them to become better clinicians because you had to rely on the history, you had to rely on your examination. And actually blood tests and investigations, they just tend to confirm what your diagnosis likely is so yeah they mm -hmm. said having the luxury of these things when they came back helped their practice but it wasn't all they relied on anymore mm. yeah yeah definitely 
Although I think I need a bit more clinical experience before mm. I get to that stage, you know. Um, but yeah, I guess, yeah. I was wondering, has it made you consider more of a general training path now? Um, in yeah. order to be able to be a better clinician for refugee work? Yeah, it's interesting because I think if... I, I, I'm really interested in refugee medicine and kind of inclusion health in general. Mm. Um, but And GP would lend itself quite well to that. Mm. But... I just really love medicine. So I'm kind of really, really drawn to uh, just doing CMT and going down that path and finding myself within that somewhere. I think it's where my heart is at the moment, where my fashion is. So I think pursue and don't regret, maybe. Exactly. And I mean, yeah. you, know, you can always, yeah, there's always flexibility for that. Yeah. At the end of the day, which yeah. you've yeah, <laughs> you know in practice. Rather maybe than a theory, went a little like bit overboard with that, yeah. <laughs> Um, so tell us a bit about, about your homelessness project. Mm. So what was this initially like a little QI project? Yeah. <laughs> there <laughs> we go. QI projects aren't just for this evening. Exactly. Yeah. So when we were in A&E, they told us we had to do an audit. Mm. So um, I kind of wasn't really sure what I was going to do it on. But I I don't know. Um, in our A&E department, maybe probably most of A&E departments, overnight you just get loads of people sleeping in the, um, in the waiting room. Mm. And... Everyone's like, oh, they're, they're the homeless people, you know, try and move them out and things. And I don't know, that that really got to me. So I thought, okay, let's find out the numbers. they move them out so aggressively sometimes. Yeah. And I'm just like... Yeah. I thought there was sort of like you? a symbiotic relationship where we just know that at four o'clock yeah. that corner is reserved. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just leave them. Yeah, like, I'm so sorry, but the two back rows are taken, sir. <laughs> exactly. Find another seat. Okay. Like some people do not have beds to go to, so <laughs> this is their bedroom. Okay. It's a two-hour waiting time. It's not that bad. You can sit in front. <laughs> Those seats might be more comfortable than the actual like trolleys in the in the A&E. Um, yeah. So I thought they're not really harming anyone. I mean, um, so I just wanted to get the numbers, get some like data, actual data mm. on like who these patients are, why are they coming, what are we doing with them. So yeah, I just kind of started collecting data about. Basically, anyone that comes into A&E with, um, you know, on the system, it says like no fixed abode or hostel accommodation. So I sort of picked up all of those patients over like a six month period and um, looked at them, why they were coming, whether they were staying in hospital, how they were being discharged repeat attendances yeah. that was a, a massive what are thing some of the things that you learned from that study so uh, most of the stuff is probably what you'd expect so what they come in with is things that are related to kind of having a chaotic lifestyle so um you know mental health problems injuries and intoxication mm -hmm. but what i didn't realize was how much they were coming back so within the six months period quite a lot of them came back so obviously the problems were still ongoing and I feel that the basis of that is probably because they are, you know, they don't have like a stable somewhere to go home to, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of started researching into it. And obviously, I think we all know that there's these indiscrepancies between health and homeless people in the general population. Um, and I got in touch with a big charity called Pathway, and they have some really interesting projects in terms of homelessness and health. So, um, putting in advocates into hospitals uh, for homeless patients, trying to to pick them up in hospital because these are vulnerable people. Yeah. To pick them in hospital, you know, get them set up with a GP, try and get them some housing. And I, basically I wanted to use my project as a business case to get an advocate for the hospital. Yeah. So that is what I'm working on at the moment. Okay. <laughs> so that's a project at the moment. Yeah. And have you found that um, people meet that with like a, a positive response, people are willing to get involved in that or are people quite dismissive? So no, actually, when I was talking to other doctors, everyone says, yes, like we need someone mm. like that. There's, there are a lot of homeless people that we don't really know what to do with them. We end up sending them back onto the streets. It mm. doesn't feel right. Yeah. Um, I did a, I did write a business case. I, I sent it to this competition <laughs> that they had. Uh, it wasn't successful, but one of my consultants kind of was really interested in it, is picking it up for me and trying to get and some funding. And the right consultant. The right consultant, yeah, I think yeah. We all know who, yeah. who that is. <laughs> <laughs> We're all looking very con like conspiratorially around yeah. each other, like, what? Yeah, so, The most you know, powerful man in the hospital. Yeah, luckily I'm kind of, you know, working with him, so I kind of sent it his way. And uh, he's trying to get, kind of take the project forward to get some funding for me, so... 
Yeah, it should be yeah. exciting if he I get that. He would love to hear that we just refer to him in that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should get him in. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. No, that's great because yeah. I think so often, like, you know, throughout our... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com times we'll all have an experience that kind of really sticks in your mind mm. um but we don't always end up taking it forward and running with it and mm. like making a change out of it and maybe that's because we get bogged down with other things and you yeah. get distracted and you know yeah. life gets in the way but um it's fantastic to see that you're like really taking that forward and, and yeah but you change yeah but you're right i started the project in 2016 so no, it takes time it's uh it's very very slow and uh but you know you've also been doing yeah. a great amount of work in between that as well when you think about it like yesterday when I was talking to Hazel, um, mm. uh, the food medic, about what she had been doing, actually she was really interested in nutrition and exercise and health medicine that she started doing her own research and reading into it. Mm. And actually it's very difficult to do that at the same time as taking a full-time career as a doctor. Mm. So she needed some s- sort of time out to be able to pursue that properly. Mm. And that's what you've yeah. been doing as well. So yeah. I think it is a real testament to following your passions and yeah. doing something outside of the norm. Mm. and these things always take time you know these things don't change overnight and there's so many processes you've got to go through mm. and so many people you need to speak with and it's just about yeah being quite persistent yeah and yeah, being yeah. Quite persistent and just not you not know. giving up exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely keep so, pushing uh, so we've t- spoken about the burden of homelessness in our communities Subu, have you ever had any dealings with people who have no fixed abode or and yeah. you find it difficult to manage them because of that. Yeah, and I, I think, it, interestingly, because it touches on the fact that I've obviously just come off my A&E job, and you speak about how often they repeat a tent. And actually, over the course of four months, I feel like there's patients that I see more often than some friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly. And, it, it, you know, as much as... It's actually quite nice, because I think that they kind of... Um, I feel like... Yeah, I, and people do this when they're going through a lot of hardship, but sometimes they take it in a very, like tongue-in-cheek way and they're actually very funny and yeah, they're like because yeah. you kind of have to be right otherwise you're just going to be depressed so yeah yeah it goes one of one of each ways and th- I remember there's this there's this one patient I used to see very often and he'd often come in intoxicated and um it used to make me really sad because I was like he's really young and um you know we had a, a long conversation once where he then sort of spoke to me about recent bereavement and you know that since then things have really spiraled out of control and he'd really lost like his sort of like safety net and like the balance that he had in the world kind of really went out and Mm. since then he had kind of spiraled into this whole thing and you know we're talking about it and he'd kind of actually gone through all the right processes he'd been referred to like the alcohol service he'd he'd seen a you know a therapist Mm -hmm. but just none of it had been quite right for him and now Mm. he was very sort of like just um you know didn't have a lot of faith in any of it anymore didn't think anything would ever change for him and had become very like well, whatever, like, mm. this is just my life now. And he just had such an attitude of like, meh, like, this is just it now. Um, and maybe it was just me being very naive and maybe a bit perky after my second cup of coffee at 2 a.m. And I was just like, no, your life's going to be fine <laughs> and you're going to be okay. And, you know, trying to be like, you've just got to, you know, like get back on the on the track. And But as much as I was saying that, it's like I could appreciate that I was in no place to be telling this guy anything about life when... 
like from what experience am I coming to speak to him? But I kind of just wanted to be able to like, I don't know, kind of say like, I don't, I don't know, maybe just kind of give him some sort of hope in that moment because he yeah, seemed very hopeless. Yeah, and I think you're also acknowledging all the good work that he has done as well. Yeah. Because, and I think it goes back to what Maya was saying earlier when she was saying that actually these um, refugees that she mm. meets have a lot of hope and they've clearly had a lot of resilience to even get to the camp yeah. in the first place. So actually we do need to be a voice to acknowledge what they've been doing as well exactly um, so sometimes it does come across naive to them but yeah it's always it's difficult to know how to communicate that clearly sometimes yeah there's, a, there's also a, there's also a lot of isolation with homelessness so yeah coming into hospital might be their only contact with another person who speaks to them as a person yeah not as a homeless but people just walk past most yeah. most of the time so actually that is probably a really positive experience for someone, and there are a lot of a lot of problems with with the housing situation and getting people back on their feet. But I think, like, I, I think if the one thing that you say, it will probably stick with him, and yeah. maybe he'll do something different next time, yeah. or something. And I think also, I think that's why I feel the advocate role is really important because yeah. they, it's not, it, it's quite big expectation to expect someone to just pick themselves up and of go course. find a job and all of this when they've. So I think just having the advocate, having someone help them navigate the system, yeah. having and also as a hospital, I think we are kind of in a position where we see a lot of vulnerable people. Mm. So if we can do something to kind of push them in the right direction, I think it's even if it's something really small, like telling him, no, you can do this. Yeah, and, no, you know, probably you probably stuck with him. You know, absolutely. I think sometimes it's that um, I suppose kind of touching on what you said, Amelie, like. I think that I could sense in him that as much as he was coming across as almost a bit hopeless, I felt like he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And maybe just in that moment, he had just maybe run a, like run out of fuel and he was just tired of having to try all the time. And I felt like maybe he just needed a bit of like an external power up. So that was kind of me. Um, <laughs> and that was the first time I saw him. And then like, I saw him, you know, a few more times after that. And the last time I saw him, I remember being like, oh, I remember you. Like, do you remember me? Because he was, you know, it was, it was quite intoxicated like yeah. the first few times <laughs> and he was like yeah I do remember you and I was like oh yeah, hey. <laughs> and I, I thought that was an interesting thing because I mean sometimes you you don't see people again even though you know they probably have come back in but when you do see people again and again the interesting was the last time that I saw him um you know, he was like, I remember what we spoke about and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, you're not going to see me again. And, you know, and he was like really <laughs> yeah. motivated. And I actually didn't see him again. Oh, well, I hope yeah. that's a good thing. And I hope that he's, you know, maybe picked himself up a bit and he's doing well. But you might have made a real difference there. I mean, who knows? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I'll just say while I'm here, um, if you do see patients in a &E, uh, and if they want help, um, you can ask them where they actually, if they are homeless, where they're sleeping. Uh, there's an app called Streetlink. Has anyone heard of it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a free app. You download it. It's brilliantly designed. You just say this is where they're sleeping. Um, describe them a little bit, and then there's there's outreach teams, and they come and have a chat to them. Say these are the services available for you, and then if they want to engage, they can. If they don't want to engage, they don't have to. Um, I've used it quite a few times, and sometimes you get emails back saying, "Oh, the person that you referred to us has engaged, has, is now engaged in, in local services." So you kind of see the feedback. So yeah, you know, I would really recommend getting that that app if you want. I think yeah. it's interesting you've mentioned that app, um, particularly in relation to um, the homeless patients. I when I was in psychiatry, we used to have we used to have to use Streetlink a lot. Um, and it was just purely because we weren't able to house certain patients who, for example, didn't have a didn't have who hadn't paid taxes essentially mm. for a number of years so we weren't able to provide them with like even like the halfway housing for example um, and street link was really useful in order to get them linked in with some sort of social worker or someone who could mm. point them to the right services because actually these people don't have access to the internet they can't search things as easy as we can um, so it was really useful to have them in contact with an expert but it's such a shame that these are the only mm available things so i think advocacy work is really important mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yeah that'd be great if i could see that with more anes mm. yeah for yeah. sure oh, my own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens <laughs> there's always hope <laughs> with people like suba telling people they can <laughs> <laughs> me just telling people off in a yeah. motivational way <laughs> um but <laughs> um, but I wanted to also touch on um the fact that you spoke about how obviously there's a health disparity with um 
the homeless population and how, of course, you know, we can see them for, for things like injuries, intoxication. And um, I think, unfortunately, sometimes like different doctors have different levels of tolerance for different presenting sure, complaints. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people that just see intoxication and already like rolling their eyes and going with very much an attitude of like, you're wasting my time. City had an out. Yeah, which I think is such a shame sometimes. But I do appreciate, yeah. I, I don't know, I, I do but appreciate But it is a shame because from. it almost, because that's the accepted culture in the hospital and also mm. the world. So if it, actually the seniors are the ones to be like, oh, whatever, CT head, mm -hmm. fluids, yeah. kick them out. Yeah. It's just, it feels so unnerving when you see that as a junior doctor mm. because you want to help out a little bit more without having that label of being naive. Yeah. yeah. And it has to come from the top. Yeah. But it has to come from the top. Mm. You need that push to say, this is important. We should be focusing on this. Yeah. Um, actually, when I started looking into it, there's the there's basically a new um, act as part of the homelessness reduction bill. Mm. So it's already come into place, but basically hospitals, because they are public authorities, will have a, a duty to kind of do something to reduce homelessness and to reduce threatened homelessness. Mm. So hopefully there will be a push for, you know, practical stuff to be done, but who knows? I don't really understand yeah. how, how these things... How do you shift the culture, though, for us to start accepting homelessness as an important mm. thing to care for? I guess I, I did a talk in the AMU teaching... And people said, oh, yeah, actually, the respiratory uh, consultants and the respiratory team were like, yes, actually, our TB patients, you know, they cause us a lot of problems. This is literally what I was, was going to come to. I was about to talk about TB patients. I was going to come to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they said, yes, you know, we've had these patients stay in hospital for such a long time because yeah. we can't send them home. Um, so I think I, I tried to go along the the financial incentive side because that's mm. how I get the money for the advocate. Yeah. So I tried basically I looked into waiting times in A&E. Yeah. Um I looked into bed uh, days and the cost of bed days. Um that's not the way I think, but that's the way I've shifted my thinking. Where you have to think, you have to think, <laughs> yeah. Um because this is how we get money moving into yeah. getting these kind of projects. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I, I I genuinely think there is a financial incentive yeah, to get uh, to tackle the problem. Um, and I don't know, I guess just saying, you know, there are really easy things that you can do. The street link camp is so easy. It takes like two minutes to fill it mm. out. I don't just use it at work. I use it when I'm out in the street as well. Um, so it's, I think people, I don't think people, uh, I think when you actually ask someone, you know, they will, I think most doctors will have the same views that we do. Of course. It's yeah. just that when you're under pressure in AE and you've got someone coming in intoxicated, it's, you know, you, you kind of lose that empathy maybe yeah but it's just i don't know maybe continuing to drive in the message without kind of driving people crazy <laughs> yeah and i think it's also important to kind of push yourself to always remain present in your work mm. now actually when you talk about your experience uber with that um gentleman who came in a couple of times had you not been present with him initially mm. You may not have remembered him the second or the third time, and you may have never actually built that connection. So I think it is important for us to build connections with our patients, mm. um, yeah. because that's the way in which you can. That's why we did medicine, really. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's the bottom yeah. line. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even yeah. when you know, even I remember the first time I went to see him. I remember you know acknowledging like myself when I first mm. read the presenting complaint. It was a bit of a you know internal eye roll as I go, <laughs> and, and as I get there and he's sleeping, and I'm like, hello, hello, and you're like, oh, hello, God, I'm so. hit, please. Yeah, you know, and then but then it was actually you know when mm. you then start communicating and you kind of feel like I don't know, there's like a degree of of embarrassment and shame from him and then you can kind of resonate with that and yeah. you're like oh okay and then and then the relationship builds and you build the rapport but I think having that experience for me when I then approach patients in the future I'm always a lot more like check myself mm -hmm. and check my own sort of attitudes when I'm going in um, but I wanted to speak about um, how people that come in homeless also have quite serious medical conditions like mm. TB mm -hmm. because I think one of the saddest cases I ever saw and probably the only time I think I've actually cried in the hospital which I'm quite proud of like I'm sorry but it's the only time I cried in hospital wow that is impressive I know right <laughs> I've been very close I've been like like you know eyes brimming <laughs> but this time a few tears actually rolled oh, down wow. the cheek did you not go into the the sluice room and I didn't I didn't I literally in cried in there I <laughs> <laughs> pretending that I'm testing urine but I'm actually like Desperately Desperate. sobbing <laughs> over the sluice. That's so sad. We had a friend called David who worked with us in A and E, and he used to fill his um, scrub pockets with chocolate to find crying people in the sluice room. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. Yeah. But you, you know, protective. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 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 
going. But you when you're like, oh, that is a problem with Amy. Yeah. Like, that shouldn't be the norm. Yeah. I'm surprised that I've not come across anyone crying in a cupboard or anything. But um, <laughs> but no, this it was so sad. I just, I, I cried, like, mm. in front of the patient. It was, I mean, I don't think they realised. I'm, I'm a very secretive crier. <laughs> So um, it was a guy I'd seen who'd come in um, and I think it was his attitude. Um, he didn't speak any English and he had, his friend had basically brought him in being like, you, you need to come and see someone. He had been like coughing blood for weeks and his friend came in and was really worried. And, you know, they'd kind of done the whole thing where they sat around and someone had called their name and they hadn't heard. And now they'd booked back in and it was like seven hours down the line. And his, his friend had been up all night with him. He had to go to work in the morning. And, and the patient was just like, the most grateful person ever. Mm. Like the second I, I kind of like take my stethoscope off to like, you know, before I've even been like, I'm going to examine you. He's already like whipping up his shirt and <laughs> take standing, standing to attention and, you know, yeah, like yeah, um, yeah. just yeah. really sweet and trying to be really helpful and trying to, you know, um, and not at all frustrated or angry, even though the, the, the friend was a bit frustrated initially. Um, and as I sort of took the history, I kind of like this really sad picture kind of evolved of just how he was living in a warehouse and, you know, how what he used to have a job and he used to have all these things and how that all kind of dropped out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and all these things. And I remember then going and looking him up on our system and finding like all these issues and he'd previously had TB and had it treated and his x-rays were just the most horrific thing I've ever seen. I was looking at them and I was like, oh my God. Um, and I just remember feeling like, as I was examining him, I just remember feeling like he was, it's like he had lost any sort of sense of ownership over himself. He kind of was very just kind of like at the whim of this world. Mm -hmm. And it was, but in the most like innocent way, he was kind of had this childlike innocence to him in the way that he was like, he had come and he was like willing to do these things. And you know that like, if he was diagnosed and started on treatment, like he would take all his treatment, but he would go back to the same situation and it would probably all happen again. And I think that attitude, like as I was literally examining his chest, it just really overwhelmed me. And mm. I just cried like secretly whilst I was listening to the back of his chest and then like quickly like wiped my tears and turned mm. back and was like, okay, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, Cause I felt like it wasn't my place to be like sobbing about him to him. Yeah. So I secretly cried. And then I just remember feeling really sad and thinking about him and being like, it's such a shame that despite his best intentions, like that his I don't system know, has failed him. Yeah, the system yeah. has failed him and the circumstances yeah. around him are kind of like a noose around his neck. Um, and how many times is he going to experience this until this becomes too, like too severe and too significant? And, you know, what goes on from there? But, but with and Maya's new project, <laughs> you know, hopefully that will not be an issue as much. And can I just ask, Maya, clearly that story was really difficult for Suba to deal with at the time, and I think it would have been very difficult for all of us. With your the camp in Lesbos, surely that, that's an experience that you have with pretty much every patient that you come across. Yeah. yeah. How do you develop your own like resilience, mm. or how do you, what do you need to do to prepare yourself before you go and work in these camps? Um, yeah, you, you definitely need kind of an inner strength. Um, it's it, st the stories that you hear are stories that you never even thought human beings could do those kind of things to each other. Um, it, it's really, really heartbreaking. Um, that, like you were saying, how grateful this patient was. That is something that I will never forget from those camps that they would come and they would wait for hours and then I, they'd see me and I literally could do the very, very basic thing for them. And they were so grateful. And it's it, it makes you feel so humble. It makes you feel like I don't I don't really know what I've done here. It's I've taken so much more from them than they have from me. Um, so yeah, you, you, you have to, you have to mentally prepare yourself that it's something that is going to be completely out of your comfort zone. When I got back, I, I needed to do a lot of reflecting to kind of think, how am I going to move? You know, what am I going to do about this? It's, it really, really stays with you. But what stays with you more is their kind of their, their resilience, their strength. Um, because they're not, they're not only grateful for you, they help each other. They're creating this community there that somehow works. Um, I don't really know how, but it's it's kind of a, a really it's an amazing experience. Like I said, it's it's you don't really understand where it comes from, where the strength comes from, but it's just it's just there. You just see it, um, and yeah, I guess I guess that's <laughs> that's what I yeah. took away from it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's a good answer. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's difficult, isn't it? Um, 
Yeah, so just because we're coming towards the end of the interview, even though we could keep talking for ages, which I'm sure we will straight <laughs> after this because we're all way too chatty anyway. Maya, if other people wanted to get involved in working in refugee camps um, or working in resource-poor environments, what, what would you advise them? How would they go about even researching it? Mm-hmm, yeah, so um, there's so there's the, the way I did it was I just searched through Facebook and through Google to see what NGOs were working in the area. Um, there's obviously the big NGOs like MSF mm-hmm. and MDM, but they usually take people who are bit more senior than me um and i think you have it's paid jobs i don't think they have any volunteers uh, so if you want to volunteer for a short period of time there are a lot of ngos that are looking for people um you just go onto their website you, you find find out what they're doing they also do search and rescue and um activities with children in the other camp mm-hmm. so it's not just medics that they're looking for um there's lots of other uh, kind of useful skills that people can bring to the table um yeah so just research basically uh volunteers refugee camp in wherever you want to go or volunteering opportunities i would really really make sure that the ngo that you go with you research Mm. um there are a lot of work going out there there's a lot of work going on there that is you know not done the way that it should be done the humanitarian sector is a little bit messy a little Mm -hmm. bit disorganized Mm -hmm. like we know from what's been happening in the news um i would definitely research it i would try and talk to someone who's worked with them before Mm. Um, before you go I would make sure it's it's you're happy with the with the project and with the organization before you go out you don't want to get there and realize that you know it's uh it's not something you're happy with and can I ask was there anyone who did go out there and then felt feel like they needed to return sooner than they could um I think we were very supportive of each other um that we worked with uh very closely with translators Mm -hmm. we lived with the translators they're all volunteers as well um I think we supported each other um I didn't know anyone that had to go back earlier but definitely there were breakdowns yeah um we we just kind of looked after each other as much as we could um so yeah so thank you so much for sharing with us Maya thanks for having me no no (laughs) and it's so good to speak to your colleagues outside of work because I think there's so much that we all do on an individual level that we can really learn from each other Mm. so I'm even more excited that we even have this podcast to share stories and that of the great work that doctors are doing so thank you for joining us thank you Maya's got a great blog it's called beyondthebedside.blog Subu would you be able to read out a passage from one of her blogs yeah please okay pressure's on (laughs) (laughs) okay so here is an excerpt from Maya's blog beyond the bedside many patients asked me to help them forget the horrors that constantly haunted them In particular, they needed something to help them sleep. They were simply asking for a way to continue existing. I couldn't offer anything. Medications for insomnia, anxiety and depression cannot be routinely used in a camp like Moria. This is partly due to the extremely high risk of intentional overdose, but also because desperation in the camp is so severe that the availability of such medications would probably drive a black market leading to violence. Luckily, inspirational work is being done by small NGOs, such as the provision of classes, English and Greek, IT, stress relief and many more, as well as hosting events and activities to encourage integration and well-being for the refugees on the island. Everyone working in the clinic promoted these programmes heavily, and we found the benefits were remarkable. Um, Okay, so I wrote this blog um, shortly after I came back from working in Moria. So as of 2015, the number of forcibly displaced people, more than 65 million, has reached its highest since the end of the Second World War. Through sheer good fortune, most of us will never know how it feels to live in fear or to be forced to flee our homes and everything we know surge of safety. The poem Home by Warson Shire begins with no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of the shark. So let me say to those who have asked me if the solution is just to let anyone in, please think. Think about your question, about your situation, and then think about theirs. Think about the fact that the only difference between you and a refugee is the piece of land that you were born in. Had history followed a different route, it could have been any one of us behind those fences trying to get in. We as individuals can do little to change the incredibly complex situation in Syria and the rest of the world. But I think that our attitude, our sense of entitlement and our lack of gratitude for what we have is something we can and should be prepared to challenge. We live in one of the richest and most developed countries in the world, yet we lack the collective responsibility and a sense of community to end homelessness, to care for our elderly population and to stop teaching our children that success is measured in personal achievement, fame or money. Little round of applause, silent round of applause. I know. (laughs) 
There's not really much we can add to that, is there now? No, I think that was a beautiful note to end this um, episode on. I think we've spoken about some amazing things. Thank you so much, Maya. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Oh, that was so cute, wasn't it? I loved it. (laughs) So thank you guys for listening as always. I hope you're enjoying our new series on interviews with doctors who are doing some great work across the UK and abroad, as you've heard today. And Suba, do you want to finish with? Yeah, our usual round off, which is please always like, subscribe, comment, give us a five-star rating. <laughs> if you're going to give us a one-star rating, just don't do one. Um, In fact, stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> listening begrudgingly. <laughs> yeah. um, we also always love it when you guys interact with us on Instagram. I know that we were recently asking you about who else you want us to bring on the show, and that's been interesting. It Emily Sanday, I mean... <laughs> Who's got those kind of connections? Like, exactly. Please. Because we certainly don't. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it'd be really nice to round off this episode, maybe with a tune from Maya's band, Pocket Satellite. <laughs> please, Maya, can we? I absolutely love her band. I play um, her music on my Spotify, <laughs> on the ward, and everyone loves it. The only person who cringes is Maya. So I think she's like blaring just... it out while we're doing discharge summaries. Just like, So that's how we'll finish the episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you. Bye. Today's episode was recorded at Mare Street Market. Catch us over on www.afterthelettercom or forward slash after the letters on every social media network. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.